This is a special edition of the Radio Plasma podcast featuring the Neighbor to Neighbor Holyoke Legislative Breakfast, a public event recorded at El Mercado, 413 Main Street in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Um, so we'll just um, start with Aaron and he'll speak um, about the legislative priorities he's focusing on. Uh, then the city Good morning. I see everybody. Happy spring, supposedly. Uh, I'm Aaron Vega. I'm the state rep here in Holyoke. I'm one of the lucky ones that represent just one city, and I have the whole city, uh, which is really great. And I am currently the vice chair of the Committee on Children, Families, and Persons with Disabilities, which oversees a lot of the DCF uh, processes and a little bit through DMH and DTA. And I've been on a subcommittee addressing foster care issues for the last two years. Uh, so that's been a big priority of mine. We uh, in the State House are currently looking at uh, working on the budget next week, uh, a $40.9 billion budget presented by the governor. So we're working on our version of the state budget. That's $40 billion for one year. So we've got a lot of priorities that we're working on there. Thankfully, some of my priorities actually got fulfilled in the budget. I was very lucky. Uh, SSYI, which is a program that's also run here in Holyoke, a uh, diversion uh, program for young men. Uh, was funded at $8 million in the House, which has never been done for, I think, since the program was started, so that was great. Uh, and um, Mass Mentoring Partnership, which many of your organizations here in Hoyoke also collaborate with, uh, creating mentorship programs for our young people in our community. Uh, that was actually funded at a great level. So those two priorities that I was working, ready to work on amendments for actually got fully funded, or close to what we wanted, so that was great. Um, for the last couple of years, uh, obviously economic development, education have been priorities of mine. I uh, try to work a lot with the city council here and the school committee on what's happening here locally. As you may or may not know, we just recently passed a uh, pretty big uh, criminal justice reform bill. Uh, we had a lot of great things in there. The two big areas that I focused on on that uh, part of the bill was uh, expungement uh, for juvenile records, uh, also for marijuana records, since marijuana use is now legal, so expunging any marijuana records, and working on those, working on those, I said, we're live, uh, working on those, um, the time frames of quarters for federal for offenses. So that's a little hot there. Um, and got thrown out. And the SRO officers, we were actually talking about. So in schools, uh, we tr tried to codify some uh, parameters around making sure that the SRO officers get proper training to work in our schools and actually have an MOU with the police department in our schools so that it's not just based on seniority, it's based on actual police officers that one, want to do the job and are trained to work with our youth uh, in our school system so it becomes much more of a purposeful position. The other things I would say is that we are looking at uh, some uh, big uh, omnibus bills coming out that we're working on. I'll just mention three of them uh, and then Again, I'd like to just go more to the questions part, but there is an education bill coming out. Uh, we, one of the things that we're working on, uh, on that part of that bill, is a breakfast after the bell program, which actually is run here in Holyoke and Springfield and a lot of the gateway cities. 
It's a program where there's actually federal dollars to ensure that every student gets a breakfast and it's after the bell, it's in the classroom. So it's not before class where kids don't want to come to school early and they're all playing with their friends. So it just it's a program that is federally funded. Districts are using this money to hire additional staff in their in their uh, culinary issue uh, departments. They're buying buying uh, equipment. They're funding they're funding food for after school programs. So it's a really great program that was piloted here in Holyoke and now is district wide and we're trying to bring it statewide that would mandate basically any district with 60% or more free reduced lunch would automatically get this so everybody eats together. So it's not about who has money, who doesn't have money. It's about coming together in the community and the breakfast in the morning and having it uh, with your friends and with your teachers. Uh, we're working on an energy bill. Uh, we're working on making sure that places like Holyoke, uh, and this goes back to my city council counterparts, we're municipally run gas and electric. We're not on national grid and all these other um, big sort of network conglomerates that have really high rates. We're in Holyoke. We're a very green community, so I know environmental justice is a big issue. Uh, so we have great uh, environmental portfolio of renewable energy in Holyoke. We're working to make sure we keep that. Why that's important to everybody in this room some of the uh, ideas out there that would change the parameters around our renewable energy portfolio, if they went through, they would increase your rates probably double. So if you have a gas and electric bill that you pay or your family pays, if some things that happen at the state level, they could change things the way that we do things here in Holyoke, it could affect your bill drastically. So, and again, one of the things that we utilize, especially in the city council around economic development, is our low energy rates. It's a draw for companies to come into Holyoke. And then that leads me to the economic development bill, uh, which is usually what we call a jobs bill. A lot of money comes in for programs for um, career point, uh, programs through Holyoke Community College on workforce development, the regional employment board, our summer youth jobs programs money, so summer jobs for our teens, um, youth works, those kind of grants and those kind of programs are run through an economic development bill, and all those are a huge priority uh, for me. It's one of the things I can constantly run on, and we're really lucky that the chair of economic development is right in uh, Chicopee. And then the last thing I'll mention is a health care bill, because I'm sure everyone is concerned about their health care costs and having coverage. Um, and so we, uh, we in the House, the legislature, are against a proposal by Governor Baker that would change the parameters of mass health. Uh, and basically, in a nutshell, would basically remove 140,000 people in Massachusetts off mass health. In a nutshell, it's basically there's a poverty rate, right, 100% poverty rate by the federal government. In Massachusetts, we say if you're 130% over or under that, you can qualify for Mass Health. So the governor would say, let's put it to 100%, and that would kick all those people off. So that's something that we're really against. And the other thing that we're really trying to support in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the health care bill is community hospitals. We're in Holyoke. Uh, I know maybe people maybe didn't think, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago that the Holyoke Medical Center was one of our great assets, but it really is. And hopefully now uh, you can see with the new emergency room and the new programs happening happen there. So we have a health care bill. We want to ensure that we protect our community hospitals. Uh, we're very lucky uh, to have a hospital. It's one of our biggest employers. We don't have to go far for that coverage and for our emergencies. Um, we're now in a time in Massachusetts, which is almost unthinkable, that hospitals close, right? It's happened in the Berkshires, it's happened in Quincy, it's happened in two or three other places. Can you imagine a hospital closing? So uh, this is sort of a battle between insurance companies and reimbursements rates and all kinds of 
Mr. Gosh, you don't want to hear about it at 9 o'clock in the morning on a, on a Wednesday. Uh, but again, so making sure that I'm fighting for our hospital here is really important uh, to me and I hope to all of you. So that's kind of a nutshell, but again, open to hopefully some questions later on. So again, thanks for being here. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming down and joining us. My name is Rebecca Lisi. I'm a city councilor at large. So that means I represent the city um, as a whole. Uh, so we're here to talk about legislative priorities and uh, things that I guess we've done and are looking to do in the future. Um, so I want to say that for the 11 years that I've been on the council now, um, I've been on the ordinance committee and I've become somewhat of a zoning wonk. <laughs> And it's really important to me to have the zoning right because if we don't have the underlying guidelines for what types of businesses and projects can go where, um, set up in such a way that's going to support neighborhoods and then support the business community and have really um, clear signals and guidelines for where to go and how not to um, impede on one another, um, then, I, then I think we run into trouble until we could get that straight. So if you actually look at the city, um, the city zoning map, you'll see what I think of as a patchwork quilt. You have all sorts of colors all over the place, um, especially in the downtown areas. Uh, you have a lot of grandfathered old properties that have uses that are probably not um, congruent with what type of neighborhood activities we want happening in, in our downtown. So when I think about zoning, I think there's um, two large pr um, priorities that I want to work on that I have been um, working to advance. Um, there's some procedural issues in terms of uh, my orders getting stuck in committee and not being advanced by the chair, um, but they are still priorities and I think that uh, on that committee we now have some colleagues that are working to put some pressure on the chair um, to take up my orders. Um, so first you might have heard about a project called um, the RC District. Um, this is the creating a retail center district, and that would go from um, Whiting Farms Road down to the mall. So right now there's like four different types of business zones in that area, and you have all these different um, businesses competing with one another on an uneven playing field because the controls for signage and the controls for how tall you could build a building and what types of buildings can go in there are all different. And so for me it's Number one is creating an unlevel playing field for the businesses that are down there. Number two, it creates a lot of confusion for businesses that want to locate in our community. And we want to be able to locate, um, you know, retail type jobs and at the periphery over by the mall and then um, more industrial or manufacturing or as we just saw, uh, we were able to bring in uh, medical manual, man, sorry, medical mar marijuana processing and cultivation uh, facility into the downtown, which I think is a great um, use of repurposing our old mill buildings. Um, but anyhow, we want to make sure that we can send a clear signal to businesses so they know exactly where they want to put their business, um, so they could get their business up off the ground rather quickly, and then create jobs for our residents. So we want to create something that says this is a you know, big green flag for retail type businesses um, over by the mall. And then on the other hand, I think we want to be able to return uh, the housing integrity to this neighborhood in particular. And I've co-filed an order um, with 
um, Councilor Roman, um, to begin to retrench the industrial zoning that has crept into this neighborhood. Um, we, we have not only a lot of industrial zoning, but um, business highway zoning. Um, and if you think about business highway, what I want you guys to think about is something that could go over by the mall, for example, right? So it's a highway, businesses, big signs, um, and we have over time allowed business highway to creep into this neighborhood, which is why we have a lot of these um, used um, auto sales and auto repair shops kind of scattered throughout the neighborhood, and that really breaks up the, um, the neighborhood feel. So uh, working with the planning department, working with other counselors, uh, we're looking to return the housing integrity to the neighborhood and retrench the industrial creep in, in this neighborhood in particular. Uh, another priority that I had uh, going into this legislative year was rent control and gentrification mitigation um, policies. Uh, what we learned, we actually were able to bring it up in committee rather quickly, but what we learned was that in Massachusetts, it is actually illegal to create any sort of rent control policy. Um, that if you create a rent, rent control policy, that the city has to then um, reimburse <laughs> the landlords for the losses that they would take with a rent control policy. Um, we have had, with the medical mar marijuana um, processing uh, facility, uh, some money come into the city via um, the host community agreement, and then there's also dedicated pots for um, wards one and ward two, where, which are the neighborhoods closest to where that facility is going to be placed. So I'm not writing off the rent control policies even under the form that they're, they're currently written. Um, perhaps there is a way that we create a um, stipend or fund to, or, or subsidy of sorts to, to, off, to offset um, the loss of the landlords if we were to implement a rent control policy. So I'm not, I'm not writing it off just yet. I think we have to think a little bit more creatively or perhaps put some pressure on our folks in Boston to revisit um, the, the legislation at the state level um, that, that prohibits rent control. Um, along the same lines, I think that there are other gentrification mitigation policies that we'd like to be able to explore. Um, and with this, I think that we want to engage the uh, knowledge of the five colleges. Um, and what I have just started to do is reach out to folks about creating some sort of um, forum, community forum and conversation about gentrification. Um, there's several, there's like a threefold um, goal there. Number one, I think that um, we need to understand what gentrification is. I think very often um, people throw out the term gentrification, um, and if we call everything gentrification, then I don't think that we're actually going to be able to um, utilize or seize the opportunities that are coming our way, um, and, uh, and we're not going to be able to focus our attention on projects that may have a negative impact on our community. If we're, if we're scattered and fighting everything that's coming into the city, then we're not going to have um, the energy, time, and resources to actually leverage a fight against real threats. So I'd like us as a community to get really clear about what is gentrification, how do we recognize uh, gentrification, um, and then you know, how do we create green, green lights for good projects to come in? How do we identify what the metrics are to say this is a good project and 
on the same at the same time, how do we uh, create some metrics that say this is a bad project so that we can, you know, create green lights and, and red lights for the types of projects that we want here. Um, so getting clear about um, gentrification, what it means, I think that um, across the country there are communities that have um, different pieces of policy and legislation that have had the ability to mitigate the effects of gentrification. Um, so I'd like to work with the five colleges in this sort of like community forum to figure out what, what are best practices out there. What can we put in our toolbox um, and then implement so that we can protect ourselves um, and, and make sure that neighborhoods, um, vulnerable communities um, aren't going to be railroaded as we develop. I think that there is such a good thing as um, positive and constructive development and I think as a community we need to be ready to recognize what those things are um, and, and be able to move forward at the same time put some policies in place to make sure that our, our vulnerable communities um, and neighborhoods are protected. Um, and then finally, the uh, recent FCC ruling around net neutrality sparked a, a big conversation in the city about what is the city's uh, capacity to create its own municipal data network so that we're not similar to, um, as uh, Representative Vega was just saying, we are not connected to the grid for electricity. We have our own municipal um, power. So what is the opportunity that we have before us to create our own uh, municipal data and, and Wi-Fi um, source. Um, so number one, I have an order file to have a conversation with the Holyoke Gas and Electric. Um, they do have a fiber network. They do have um, you know, the ability to create Wi-Fi. How extensive is that network? Can we do more? Can we create um, you know, a municipally owned data network? Um, and then relatedly, I, was, I traveled a lot this summer. Uh, I traveled to uh, Portugal and Italy, and most cities that I traveled to had free Wi-Fi. You had to log in. <laughs> you had to give them some information about like, you know, some really basic demographics like your age and your email address. Um, but to me, I'd like to see us create the opportunity for free city-wide Wi-Fi here, here in the city um, for two reasons. Number one, I think that if we have free city-wide <laughs> city Wi-Fi, um, we can help close the, um, the internet gap. Um, the access that uh, higher socioeconomic uh, status folks have um, compared to lower socioeconomic um, status and their access to the internet and the information that's there. Um, so that's one thing. But then also, if we want to continue to market ourselves as a destination, um, when people come to visit, if we have you know, this free citywide Wi-Fi that people can log into and we collect a little bit of uh, demographic info, um, then I think that could help the city market itself better to people that may be inclined to visit or figure out ways to um, attract people that aren't already visiting the city, um, whether it's for investment or recreation or whatever. But I think that um, the ability to collect a little bit of data um, and then use it for marketing purposes um, is worthwhile. So those are, those are the three big umbrella um, issues that I'm working on. And I'll be happy to answer more questions when we get to that part of the, the breakfast. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you so much uh, to Aaron, to Neighbor to Neighbor, and Jackie. And I want to welcome you guys. I also wear the dual hat being the executive director of Nueva, Nueva Esperanza. Um, and I love the fact that I'm here today in this room. I want to thank our former board president, Maria Salgado, for being here, for helping me get that job. Um, but also, Neighbor to Neighbor is now in Nueva Esperanza, and that's for a reason. Uh, we've switched our mission and vision to being a powerful, vibrant, sustainable partner to create a powerful Puerto Rican Afro-Caribbean community of Holyoke. And so I think that overlaps into my legislative priorities. We have a race class problem in the city and an economic problem in the city that overlap tremendously. So I've made it very clear that I am not going to run again in Ward 2 because I also feel that our council is very stagnant and that we have elected officials. Um, this is not a slight against Rebecca. Anyone past the 15-year mark has to go. Uh, we just need fresh blood. We need more community members involved in city government. Um, and people just stay there too long, and then they are stuck in the good old days of wanting to bring Holyoke back to when it was great, right? That all sounds familiar, and these are even from some progressive colleagues of mine, right? Um, and I think the biggest problem we have in city government and my legislative priorities is that we're always talking about great changes or positive development, but for whom? Not for poor people, not for people of color, and it doesn't matter how liberal these progressive or progressive these ideas are, they leave out people of color and marginalized folks. And so I'm going to just dive right in. Let's talk about the marijuana companies and the fact that, yes, this neighborhood is zoned IG, and I want to give credit where credit is due. That miraculous money that's coming to Ward 1 and 2, right? My colleagues yelled at me and said that I created boss politics again. But if it wasn't for Carmen and Jerry and the people from the hood and Izzy and all those other folks who were saying, hey, marijuana company, you guys are coming in here making millions of dollars a year. You're a multi-million dollar company operating multiple facilities in multiple cities and states throughout the country, and you're only giving us $7,500 each neighborhood. Originally, they didn't want to. Originally, these companies were saying, well, we're, we're investing in the general fund. That money's getting donated to the city. But as a council, we get a deficit budget every year, so the neighborhoods never see that money. So if we, if we didn't fight, if the people didn't fight, if they didn't organize, if they didn't get together and hold these companies accountable, we would have seen none of that money. So I did propose legislation to create similar programs to the city of Oakland, California. So we have our own equity program here that specifically helps and lifts up the men and women who were affected by the war on drugs, so that way they get first dibs at any marijuana recreational facilities. I cannot believe that this state, and I really want to implore Aaron, the state's giving the medicinal marijuana companies first dibs on recreational. That's bullshit in my book, and I'm sorry, I speak very plain. I cannot believe we're allowing companies who already make multi-millions of dollars, who have to put a $500,000 to start their marijuana companies in Massachusetts. The fact that they get first dibs, but we've had men and women who are locked up, and I'm glad about the expungement, but now we need a restorative justice component, where those men and women who are getting their records expunged, we're saying to them, do you want to open a marijuana company? Well, medicinal marijuana company X, you have to open a company, you get first dibs, but then you have to help five of those men and women start their own company up. You have to give us $400,000 of seed money to help them get started. I also want to get rid of, and I want to get rid of this mayoral contracted police force. I filed an order for a civilian police commission because we do have a police and race issue here. This is with all due respect to the chief, and I've told him this before. We need a civilian police commission because with all due respect to the mayor, he's the chief's boss. So anytime there's a police issue in the city, and I know because after the whole Black Lives Matter, all these riots and stuff to happen, we have asked as a community for the police department to come in and listen, and the mayor and the police chief say it's not a good time. So we need a civilian police commission so that way the community feels like they have a place to go, where if they feel that they've been discriminated against or harassed, they can go and not feel 
like they're going to be targeted, right? Um, we also try, and we're going to get this passed, and I thank my colleague Rebecca for co-filing, the local ban the box order. Yes, it's a state law, but local municipalities can codify it and ensure that we don't get another right-wing nut person in office who's all of a sudden going to say we have to check the box if someone's been convicted of a felony or crime. We're going to get that passed. Jobs, not jail. I really want to give credit to Jafet Robles, who's not here in that whole state law. That really, a lot of credit goes to Jafet, who I love, was my sponsor. In Holyoke, yes, we're trying to pass the gentrification mitigation zone to really allow the neighborhoods to own their stuff. That also ties into participatory budgeting, which I filed. We need to let the neighborhoods control their own money. You want to see neighborhoods come to life? The fact that in this city, and again, with all due respect to Rebecca, all the at-large counselors come from one neighborhood and one ward, that's a problem to me. But let the money be controlled by the different wards and neighborhoods, and you'll see what happens in this city. Um, and so specifically for the gentrification mitigation zone, and to answer Rebecca's question, I want to give credit to Maria here and Vanessa Rose from Mount Holyoke. We've already started that. Mount Holyoke and Nueva are going to be doing a community conversation. Vanessa Rose has actually been studying with a student from Mount Holyoke, getting data on gentrification in Holyoke. Because it is here. It is happening. And I know it's happening, and it is here, and I've even worked with Marcos on it. When I have amazing, progressive, liberal white folks telling me in an email that a little gentrification isn't a bad thing, right? So that's the conversation needs to happen first within race and class. So the first conversation we have, we're going to introduce this legislation, I mean this study that Vanessa Rose and her student have done with Maria Salgado. She takes the credit. Nueva's just the vehicle in which they've done the work. But we're going to announce that information. But we really need in this community, that's why Nueva's doing community circles. We need to start having processes where folks in this community keep asking themselves, for whom is this benefiting, right? And I don't care how progressive, how liberal you are, if it's still the same white folks in that room who are benefiting from it, I don't care how progressive the policy is, it has to go, right? And we've had some conversations around that. Around voter empowerment, I have proposed, and Rebecca's co-filed with Josie and a bunch, allowing 16 and 17-year-olds the right to vote in Holyoke. There's been municipalities in Maryland and other cities and towns who have done this. We have to stop talking and blowing bullshit smoke up our young people's asses, specifically around all this Parkland stuff. We have to start letting them vote and empowering them to vote at a younger age. 16, 17, get out and vote in local municipal elections and we could do that. And then early voting for everyone. Uh, under environmental justice, there is a pipeline being proposed to come up to Holyoke. And so we're working with the Sugar Shack folks and a bunch of other people, if you haven't heard about it yet, we have to force HGE not to agree to this terms to allow a new gas pipeline to come up to the tip of Holyoke, they're being convenient, so that way we can get more gas. And so that's coming and we want to stop that. Under educational justice, I have filed orders asking the police department, why do they put uniforms on police officers? Officers, the chief of police determines that. We do not need another school to prison pipeline mentality system where the police officers are wearing uniforms in the school system. Um, specifically, um, around for me, and I go a step further, we don't need MOUs, we don't need police department in schools. If we believe in a restorative justice concept in the city of Holyoke, I filed legislation, get them out of there. There should be no cops in the city of Holyoke public schools. If we truly believe in restorative justice, the $135,000 a year it takes to staff those school resource officers, could pay for a palante in every school, every school in the city of Holyoke. Um, and then in the 2016-2017 school year, I'm one of the only counselors, and again, I, with all due respect to my school committee colleagues and other city counselors, who's asking the police department, how many kids are you arresting a year? And I think when I was the chairman for the first two years of my term in office of the joint committee, we found out that 32 people got arrested in the Holyoke Public Schools between 2016-2017. 15 of them were for disorderly contact or disruption. So 50% were, were arrested because they interrupted or disrupted a class. That is bullshit. We should not be arresting kids like that. We had 16 of those kids were 15 and under. 
16 of those kids were 15 and under. Why do we have police in the schools? They should be out of the schools immediately. And then lastly, under LGBT and civil rights and HIV AIDS work, we have filed legislation to create a human rights commission here in Holyoke because I believe that discrimination happens more often than we say, but there's no vehicle for residents to be able to come in and say, hey, I've been discriminated against because of my race, my class, my gender, my sexual orientation. We do have a large trans population here in the city of Holyoke who are homeless, who struggle, who really have, and that's why I'm, I'm very happy about the needle exchange we have down the street. But the fact that Holyoke's the third highest city in the state with HIV AIDS, individuals contracting and living, and that 78% of those are Latinos, and the state governor keeps cutting our budget, I don't care how popular Governor Charlie Baker is, I will never support that man because he's not standing up for folks with HIV AIDS, right? And 77% of those are from Holyoke. And I thank Aaron for fighting to put the funding back in for HIV AIDS work, and we got to get more money allocated in Holyoke and Western Mass, because Gandara's entire HIV AIDS department got cut. Tapestry's outreach department that works with gay or men having sex with men got cut. So we are losing benefits in Western Mass when Holyoke's the third highest in the state. Nobody's talking about that issue right now. So that's my legislative priority, but it all goes back to race and class. I want to wrap it up quick to let the school committee members talk. Um, and then, like I said, we keep fighting, I think, collectively as a group and as a body to say, listen, the only way the Holy Public Schools are going to come back into our, our, our realm is if we stand up and fight united as a community, right? And so, yeah, my colleagues call me divisive and everything else like that. Yeah, I got yelled at for calling them out for the parade situation. But unless in this community we're really having discussions around race, class, and wealth, it doesn't matter how progressive or how great the ideas are, the community's never gonna get involved. And so I'm happy Neighbor to Neighbor is now in South Holyoke, they're down here. I'm glad Elvis is on the staff, we're gonna be out there mobilizing. And we have to learn our history. I thank people like Maria, I thank Manuel Frau, I thank Betty, all those folks, and Carlos. I used to sit with Aaron's dad in his messy office, the papers <laughs> piled up to here. And Carlos was, he knew more Puerto Rican stuff than I ever knew in my life. And he would tell me, Nelson, the only way you changed it, he, I remember he took out, I still have the Elaine Pluto button he gave me. It says, I heart Pluto, it was like a heart sign. He said, Nelson, the only way we're gonna change it is if Puerto Ricans vote, if Latinos vote. And so that's it, we have to increase voter turnout. So I look forward to collaborating and working. Those are some specific legislative priorities that I have. And fixing up the parks. I'm thankful that we pushed the mayor in this administration. Valley Arena Park's getting redone, Springdale's getting redone, Susie's getting redone. We're finally investing in the community and neighborhoods. And true story, I won't say who told me, Originally, when I went to them to ask them to fix up Valerina Park, they said no because it was a drug den. And I said, I don't give a shit if it's a drunk den. We're going to fix it up because it's a neighborhood that needs this park done. So that's the narrative that we fight against every day. And I'm thankful to some of my colleagues, like even Josie's resolution on anti-hate. We're still sitting on that in ordinance. I am the chair of Charter and Rules. And to Rebecca's point, why I have, we have co-filed a law to say, listen, any order in here, and I'm sure we'll love this, that is in committee longer than three months dies automatically because then it shows that that chairman did not do their job and take up the order because then it allows us to refile. And Rebecca and I have been pains in their butts. We refile orders every three months on purpose. <laughs> and we say that it died in committee because the truth is, there's stuff that she's filed like six years ago that still hasn't been brought up probably. It's only four years. Four years, but it seems like six. But still, the fact that it's four years because I was there when she was talking about it is ridiculous. So we have to change that culture in government. And with that, I'll end and I'll let the school committee talk. <laughs> um, 
I'm Irene Feliciano Sims, um, the Ward for School Committee. Um, I think on our side, we are working about equity and education for our students. I think that has been the fundamental goal in making our schools so much better. Um, this year, there has been proposed that we merge the two high schools, uh, where it's, you know, one, one high school, one or one city, one high school. Uh, we have gone to various different academies this year, or going on for next year, excuse me. Um, and these academies are uh, have a broadband. It was really great to see that there's gonna be um, a lot more curriculum and structure. Um, an example will be there actually has the history of Holyoke, um, environmental awareness in Holyoke, um, a lot more AP classes. Our dual enrollment program has evolved and our more students are now um, have opportunities to um, attend community college um, while still in high school. Um, the other thing that we are working on is with the MSB, uh, MASB, um, also talking about having two new schools in our district. I think that's one of the most important. You know, once you have students wanting to go to schools where it's beautiful, it's new, it's um, state of the art, um, technology uh, driven, um, you'll see so much more. I think this is a sense of pride. Um, the great thing is, is that with two new schools, every um, child will have an opportunity to go into this new school. Uh, we also are on um, the council approved um, to renovate a lot of our, our schools now, which is uh, much needed. I mean, if you look at uh, McMahon with their windows, um, um, Kelly School, who still had 1976 carpets, you know, um, <laughs> it was just crazy. Um, the dust and everything else. I think, again, giving back to um, our schools and making them look like we have invested in them will also show our students and our families that we are invested in this. Um, the other conversation we're having is, again, the SRO. Um, 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 discussion about having um, police officers in our school. I think, again, just like Nelson said, it, it, it introduces the families to same thinking that, hey, the school to prison pipeline is there. And also making sure that our, our, our SROs are having that education, talking about mental health issues, social economical issues. Um, emotional behavioral, you know, how to deal with child with special needs instead of uh, arresting them due to a mental health status. Um, also, I think we are um, having discussion about safety. I think safety has been a big concern across the, the nation now, and we're having those discussions about like how do we make our students safer? What are we doing um, to prevent any um, incidents within our schools and just um, educating our, our, our families and teachers? We are also working with families. I think it's really important to work with families now in special education, making sure that they have the opportunities and resources to talk about their children with special needs, um, advocating for those special needs and services that that are so important, and also working in our transitional vocational programs. Again, students with special needs, just like anybody else, has an opportunity to have a quality of life and build those skills at an earlier age instead of waiting till they age out at 22. Um, it, it's also the discussion at Dean School about vocational skills building. Um, in, in the areas and making our, our programs more 21st century. So again, having um, the skills necessary out there so that in the future they move on right into either a job or a career path. Um, that's pretty much all I have. I'm not as lengthy as the rest of these guys. <laughs> um, but I look forward to any questions. Hi, y'all. What's happening this morning? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be talking. I want to like do a, engage in a dialogue rather than talking at y'all, but talking with y'all. Um, so I'm Andrea Namitra, and the program director with Neighbor to Neighbor. 
Um, who's a member of Neighbor to Neighbor here? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start us off with two terms that I want us to kind of like think about, um, and I'm gonna ask y'all what comes to mind when I say them. So the first one is environmental justice and environmental racism. So think about those, and then just call out, say out loud what comes to mind when I say those two. deserts of food safety because that's something that always gets missed within the environmental fight for sure. So thanks for your all your answers. Um, so at Neighbor and Neighbor we are focusing on environmental justice and environmental racism. Just to get, go off the point of what Nelson was talking about, having this race and class lens and how we do the work is so crucial because sometimes all of us, like people of color and low income people, get lost in the fight for environmental justice. And it gets really convoluted, then people start talking about ice caps and polar bears, and you're like, come on, like let's bring it down to the people local level, because we, we get lost in it. Um, so how many of y'all were involved with the closing of the Mount Tom coal plant in 2014? Mm-hmm, yeah. You wanna talk about it? Like how, how was that? Um, for me it was powerful because Guillermina Perez, she now passed away. She was like mm -hmm. the neighbor to neighbor member mm -hmm. for me from the Holyoke chapter. Mm -hmm. She was just badass. It was like all older ladies and older Latino men who I remember were like, oh no, you gotta get involved in this. And first of all, like I said, I was from down here. I didn't even know that that was part of Holyoke because I had just been around Holyoke for a couple of years. And she was like, no, this is Holyoke and this is disgusting. And then they showed like the asthma rates and all these maps. And these were Boricua women in their home up at Tokaniki who in their home were showing me all this stuff and they're like, no, you gotta get involved, this is it. And so it was powerful for me because I really felt like it was community-led, like Guillermina, all of them, the whole troop, there was like five or six of them, right? Yeah. They led the charge and they got <laughs> us involved, that's what I felt. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would just expand, and it was so beautifully put by Nelson, I would expand upon that, that it actually was the project that all the outside communities that were always looking at Hoyoke, like the Progressive Northampton and Amherst, actually then saw that Hoyoke could actually get it done. So they supported, so it was great, because they supported the work that Virginia and we were all doing, but instead of them taking the lead, they actually realized, finally, that they could be done, and the community stepped up, and that was a culminating point, I think, for Hoyoke. Yeah, 
Yeah, so the Mount Tom coal plant, I think, is like the best example of environmental injustice and environmental racism. Um, having it located in a community that's already overburdened by asthma um, was just a huge, like, very stark thing that was happening in the city of Holyoke. Um, so the Mount Tom coal plant, I'm, I'm totally with Nelson and Aaron. It wouldn't have closed down if it wasn't for the community, like, at all. Um, this coal plant opened, I think, in the 60s, and it was supposed to close, like, in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, but it kept operating into 2011. And it racked up 2,500 Clean Air Act violations. Yeah, like the federal government kept on fining them because they were polluting the air so much and polluting the Connecticut River around this community that already has uh, asthma rates like through the roof. And it never closed down. The state never closed it down. The federal government never got the taxes that they fined this coal plant. And it wasn't until the community led this charge saying like, you all are literally killing us with the coal that you're burning, that's when it closed. Um, so it was a huge people effort and it's a great example of the mobilization work and the amount of like commitment that all these women and older men like fought for this, for this community. Um, to close something down that was really like hurting and hurting our kids, hurting us. Um, so that's a success story. That's like the community fighting back against some racist, messed up things of this coal plan and of like big corporations that are always around us trying to pollute our air and our water. Um, so with that, so we got some great wins out of that coal plant. Um, so if y'all know, it's, that coal plant is being uh, made into a solar farm. Um, and it's gonna power a thousand homes in the city of Holyoke. Um, and so the, I think the construction for that is gonna start next year, next summer. Later? I think it's completed. Oh, it's completed. Oh, snap, it's completed, y'all. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. They're actually taking it down now. What? She's talking oh, about the... The tower. the tower. Oh, the smokestack. Smoke okay, cool, cool, cool. Yes, yeah. It was three, like, yeah, three years or four years of straight fighting. Mm -hmm. um, and something that also came out of that campaign was we didn't forget about the workers. We didn't forget about the workers that were in that plant. Um, although they weren't necessarily on our side because we, we were asking to close down the plant, we were asking them to let go of their jobs, their livelihoods, that's how they fed their families. Um, but we never lost them in the fight. We never said, all right, since they're not with us, we're not gonna ask for them to be covered if it does close. Um, so for the workers, we got them retraining. Um, if they were older, we got them retirement packages. We, got, we made sure that the company would allow for jobs in the future for those people that they had to fire in the closing of the plant. Um, and that's really important that we can't forget about our labor folks because workers' rights, you know, it's, it's on us, black and brown people who are working and not getting paid full wages. Um, so we couldn't forget about that labor aspect in, in closing down that campaign. Um, so now with the neighbor to neighbor, um, what we're doing around environmental justice and environmental racism is doing, is really like incorporating it into our organizing model, right? So neighbor to neighbor, we do the broad, we door knock with y'all, we talk to your neighbors, um, and we've been doing that this year um, with this 
I don't want to call it surveys, but just we've been door knocking and having conversations with y'all about what's happening in Holyoke. What are the needs of the community? What are the downfalls? Um, what types of things are people really caring about that they want to get fixed in Holyoke? Um, and that's like the broad that we do, is that door knocking and meeting new people. And then we go even deeper from there, right? So then y'all come to our meetings, um, and then we do leadership and political education so that we give y'all the skills to go fight that fight, right? So like how we did for the coal plant, that's what we're trying to do consistently throughout Neighbor to Neighbor, is giving the tools for the community so that they can do what they need to do to make their lives and their livelihoods better. And then second is we're continuing to build that alignment between environmental justice and environmental racism with the rest of the whole bunch of issues that we're dealing with. I mean, Nelson like named them all, school to prison pipeline, um, trans rights, all that stuff. Um, and thinking about how environmental racism and environmental justice do relate to those two issues. Um, so if y'all haven't heard about the Norfolk prison that has been without clean water since 2011, but nobody knows it, right? Because they're prisoners, you know, we don't think about it, but they also deserve clean water. Um, so really, throughout Neighbor to Neighbor, we're trying to like bridge that gap between our various issues, um, and not only having it just be that we're focused on school to prison pipeline, but we're also incorporating all the other things that get lost um, in just naming a campaign as one thing. Um, and that leads us to building a movement that is way more intersectional and way more encompassing for our people. We have a huge, you know, other side that has kept us under for a long time, but if we don't have an intersectional movement where we're bringing in all the issues of the community to fight that beast, we won't win. Um, so really doing that intersectional movement and bringing about change on many different levels is how we'll reach that liberation. So I just wanted to um, expand on what um, Aaron referenced. Um, the criminal justice reform, for starters, uh, was a big win. It was 15 years in the making. Um, it included a lot of things that will benefit people that are going to prison as well as people that come home. It ends uh, five types of mandatory minimum drug sentencing. Um, so basically, the judge would know would have more power in deciding who and what amount of time you get, right, opposed to a prosecutor making that decision. There was quarry reform uh, included in the bill, which means that uh, people that have like a felony can seal their record in seven years opposed to 10, and three opposed to five for a misdemeanor. It also eliminated fines and fees for people on parole uh, for the first year home, and six months for people um, six months home um, that have misdemeanors, right? I mean, probation, sorry. <laughs> um, the felony theft threshold was raised, right? So uh, if someone steals a phone, they can have a felony. Doesn't matter their age, right? If they're younger, then this will follow them through adulthood, and it hasn't been changed in 30 years. They are now changing it to 1,200, so you know anything below that would not uh, be classified as a felony. Um, there was also juvenile justice reform, as Aaron alluded to. 
uh, diversion to drug treatment, solitary confinement. So the amount of time that people spent in solitary uh, is usually 23 hours a day and an hour of rec. Uh, they will lessen the amount of that because some people do spend years in solitary confinement. Um, there's caretakers um, provision that would, if someone takes is the primary caretaker of a child, they either get less time or you know monitored with a bracelet, uh, so they can continue to take care of their children and not lose their parental rights. Uh, there's also bail reform, which you'll probably hear about um, in coming months, because uh, they want to extend this um, out so that way that people that cannot afford to raise the bill um, would be not stay in jail because of that fact, right? Um, there will also be compassionate medical release, so people that are terminally ill can come home and be with their loved ones in their last days. Uh, there will also be police training uh, and d data collection, right, which we don't really have at the moment. I think this was a really big win. I feel like I came in at the last stretch of the of the battle, but I'm very proud of Massachusetts. Coming from New York, this is like major because a lot of these things they're not even talking about there, right? Um, neighbor to neighbor also is standing in solidarity with the Im immigrant community, and we want so to support them in any way that we can. Um, we're looking into transportation and education, workers' rights, health care for all, right? And um, the environmental justice, um, we're, we're trying to, you know, expand on that. Currently, I think you mentioned it, right, Nelson, about the pipeline? Um, Columbia Gas Company wants to create additional pipelines going from Agawam to Holyoke, um, and their excuse is that there is not enough gas to go to Northampton and East Hampton, right? Um, we can reduce the need for new pipelines by educating people about how to make their homes more energy efficient. And our mayor proclaimed Holyoke a leader in energy efficiency and sustainability, so we believe Holyoke Gas and Electric should figure out a way to produce more sustainable energy, which gets released as electricity to its customers, not as gas. Um, we should be raising awareness about this issue because of all the health risks and dangers that they all mentioned um, by increasing its use. Um, as you already know, like many people already suffer from asthma and a host of other illnesses, we just do not need to be dependent on gas more than we are currently. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Everyone <laughs> spoke to a lot of the stuff that, um, that I was going to mention, but I am really eager to get to the question and answer portion of the of this session. Does anyone have any questions? Yes, Ephraim. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much, man, for fighting for us. Um, you know, for, for, um, just uh, going over there. Uh, you should see that look of overwhelming all these battles that it was just up here. And, um, just thank you for all your hard work. Um, actually, everybody, thank you for all your hard work. Nelson, Rebecca, um, you guys are really pioneers. They're very progressive towards all your and uh, I'm excited. I think we've got a bright future coming ahead of us, and there's a lot more fights to do. But um, I have a couple of questions, Aaron. Um, do we have a weatherization program here in the Holyoke or Western Mass as uh, that the people can qualify for, like, uh, you know, to, to kind of weatherize their, their home? 
Not specifically. I mean, we do have Mass Saves, which is a grant program. HGV does do a, a interest-free home loan for homeowners, um, where they can do upgrades to their homes. Energy efficiency for interest-free gets rolled into their bill. Um, What's that program? It's Gas and Electric does a, a, a interest-free loan program for homeowners. There is Mass Saves. That's um, another grant program. We're working kind of, this hasn't, I mean, hasn't been brought up to that degree. I mean, we're working on like climate mitigation plans for the entire state where maybe municipalities could inform us of what the needs are in their areas, you know, because the needs for the coast of Boston and the south coast are much different than Western Mass. Um, so we're trying to look at like a full state mitigation plan for climate change. Awesome. Awesome. I have uh, another question. The uh, question is, uh, we can make so much progress. I heard it up there. I just have two questions sometimes. Feel free, we have enough time. We're good on time. Okay. Another question I have, Evan, is um, usually dealing with health insurance. Uh, they usually charge us a fee, but we don't, if we don't meet their you know, insurance, say if we don't have, have insurance, I don't qualify for the loan, $40, $50, or you know, it's like you right there on the line where you're not able to afford it. Well, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> I like to thank neighbor to neighbor for all the work and the great people on this panel. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, so, no, I mean, no, I mean, I, my, the penalty, as far as I, as far as I know, the penalty is based on your uh, income tax credit, so you get less of it. So what it is is that you're not getting, you're not paying something. You're just not. They're they're deducting your your individual income tax credit. Mm. So that money then just stays in the general coffers of the, of the government. And, you know, so, I mean, man, there's many things where money's coming in, money's going out, on a, on a, sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on a monthly basis in the budget. So um, the money like that doesn't go anywhere directly, I don't believe. What office is that at the legislative office? Yeah, I would say Health and Human Services. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting one. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Questions about this uh, marijuana industry and, and, and as an ordinance and, uh, as well for you, know, so I don't know if you guys get just like you did on band of box and other ordinance and all that kind of passion and hoping it'll go through. But uh, we got this um, now that marijuana is legal and those people that got criminal backgrounds in marijuana or something like that, and maybe that's all they have. Um, is there any way where they can even get a job so not in the, you know, in the, in the marijuana industry? She's like, let me start off. You got more to say. All right. <laughs> so I just wanted to say, um, number one, thank you, um, because my win is really your win. I know you're out there pounding the pavement on my behalf. So. Um, the congratulations is extended to you as well um, in this election. 
And then uh, regarding you know, the, the marijuana industry coming to Holyoke and coming to Massachusetts, um, one of the first things that we did when we saw you know, these companies showing an interest in, in Holyoke is uh, we convened a neighborhood meeting. Um, I worked with uh, the Ward 1 counselor, Gladys Lebron Martinez, to have a, a neighborhood meeting to uh, understand what the opportunities were for folks that had criminal records related to uh, marijuana um, possession and uh, we brought in our state representative and we are expunging records for um, marijuana possession and I don't know if it extends beyond that at this point yeah it's just the possession so if it was trafficking then I think that that's going to remain on people's records but um, the, the the records for possession are being expunged meaning that's being erased from uh, folks is uh, records so that they can Go, go forward with, with a clean record and get jobs either in that industry or, or other in industries. But it's especially important for the, the marijuana industry because the state law says that if you have a criminal record related to marijuana or other drug offenses that you cannot get a job in that industry. So erasing, erasing those records is especially important and uh, I think that you know, the possession is one thing. If we could go to, to trafficking, I think that would be better, but I'm not sure um, what the appetite is for that at the state level. And I was hoping that it would be like a casino is doing, hiring an X amount of people um, that had a history with, with, with uh, criminal records or whatever it might be, but they hire a, a, a certain amount of people and I think that's the that's the part that I wanted um, Nelson to speak to more. I don't know if you were planning on it in terms of the the hiring and and the, uh, the, the sorry the the money that would be given to entrepreneurs to set up their own businesses. Yeah. So a, a few things, Efrain. Thank you for that question. It's real. Again, I have to go back to the race class lens first. Who owns most of these companies and industries are white men, right? So we have to look at that lens first. And that's why I'm not afraid to call it any white man. I don't care what company you own, where you're from, what the hell you're doing here. Let's let's be real about the basic brass tacks of where it starts. These white men from these white companies, right, A, need to switch up their boards. So that's why if you look at these marijuana company applications, they all have to file as LLCs or nonprofits here in Mass. Look at their applications closely, because I did that with the medicinal one. It was one person listed two times. It was the clerk, the treasurer, and a board member. I asked, can we get local seats? Can we have local board members from the city? They did add them, but they added more white men, more white folks, right, number one. Number two is when you're looking at these host community agreements, that's where the hiring piece is in there. And when I asked this one company, I'm asking all the companies forward, this neighborhood led the way when the haunted house down the street was gonna just come in an open shop, they hired 25 out of the 40 scarers from this neighborhood in the flats. Whatever job fair they're hosting right now, look at where they're hosting the job fairs. It's not in communities of color spaces, with all due respect, to my colleagues who have a job fair, or the last one that they publicize on the news, it's mostly white folks. How many Spanish newspapers? I asked them this. They still haven't got me a response. So I'm gonna call them out because I still haven't heard a response from them. How many Spanish newspapers did they put that job fair in? How many Spanish radios did they advertise in? How many doors did they go knock in the hood and say, we have jobs for you here? They don't. What they do is they give you a bullshit overall generic hiring plan that says we commit to trying to hire X percentage of Latinos, X percentage of women, X percentage of men, and then they'll say, well, Nelson, the 
only applicants we got from this one job fair at Gentrification Central was the fact that, you know, there were mostly folks not from this community, and I call bullshit. I want more specific, and that's an administrative thing, so we can hold the mayor accountable and push on these house community agreements, and that's why I did file legislation to just like Springfield allow the city council to approve any host community agreement. Because we have to put very specific language in there, like this equity program. If we pass it on the council, we could force these marijuana companies to say, listen, whatever marijuana company, because I, I always get in trouble. They're like, Nelson, you always pick on us. Well, you're the only mother suckers who are here right now, so I gotta go based off of you. How many folks are you genuinely gonna hire and commit to? Because go to Carmen and Jerry, go to Izzy. I know Izzy could find you five guys from the hood or you who could get a job there tomorrow. They haven't done that great work yet, but we can push that from the council perspective. And even this money stuff, listen, I heard Rebecca say, listen, they're giving us money. We can somehow use that for rent control. No, Aaron needs to go back to the state and push rent control. Just push it, like screw that. Yeah, we got a Supreme Court justice ruling. So what, let's go to court again. I tell the council all the time, I'm ready to pass laws that I want the right wing to take me to court on. Let's go, <laughs> saddle up. But if we're not really gonna genuinely have these conversations with these marijuana companies, specifically around their hiring and employment force, I have a document from the one marijuana company that's here on their hiring plan. There's no specific metrics and targets like you're talking about. We can implement that, but it starts with the administration and it starts with that company. I here in Nueva, just to be transparent, as city councilor, there's five more marijuana companies trying to come into this neighborhood, five. Five, one down the street, two next to each other by Springdale Park, another one down the street that way, and another one close. They're all coming here, they're mostly white men. Only one of the companies, one out of five, has agreed to sign, just like with Carmen and Jerry at the, we, at the company, and I shared that with Izzy the other day. One out of five is willing to say that they're 100% committed to just hiring in the neighborhoods. They're willing to 100% hire Holyoke only and start in South Holyoke, the Flats, downtown, and Churchill to get their employment base. It's our job, yes, to push to say, hey, Company Q, like I said, you're gonna give us the whole BS line. Oh, we're, we, it's gonna be tight. You know, we're only gonna make X amount of dollars here. That's not true, you got 10 more companies in 10 other states that are pro marijuana and you're, gonna, you're a multi-million dollar corporation. Let's really invest in this equity program in a genuine way. So, and even that other company, the new one that's coming in, they're gonna now host their job fair, not at Gentrification Row, they're gonna do it at a pop-up in the park in Carlos Vega or at Pina Park. Like really just set up in the neighborhood and the community and have Spanish speakers. And listen, that company X, when I called them out, because I'm gonna not say their name anymore, um, I'm, I just, I'm not, because they're trying, so I'll give them credit, like, yeah, you get like a D, D plus, right? Because you're moving up from an F. But Company X told me when I sat down and I was calling them out and they called me back out, blah, blah, blah. They're lead cultivators, lead cultivators, right? Because again, I'm, I'm a guy who never asks questions that I don't know the answer to. Oh, they have to have experience in the growing industry, blah, blah, blah. When I looked at lead cultivators X's job history on their state application, they were a barista for Unos and a barback for five years before. I said, do you know how many people from the hood actually grow this stuff, know it, cut it, weight it, know if someone's trying to skim one off the top? I can get you a lead cultivators from Holio. And there you go, there you go. So we, those are the honest conversations that I keep having in the chambers and with these companies. And so I think the equity program, specifically what we could do as counselors, the equity program law, we need to get passed. The council approval of any host community agreements, because that's the other thing. These host community agreements are just crafted by the administration and the attorneys for the companies. We sometimes don't even get to see them. This last one with the marijuana company, we did request a copy. And now as a neighborhood and as a community, we need to demand all host 
host community agreements. And I'll share just one more story with you, Frank. That waste management company, right, the one that we're talking about, yeah, that came, they in their host community agreement are supposed to give $10,000 a year to Holyoke. Not a lot of people knew that. But when we started doing these neighborhood groups, they threw that out there at us, like, oh, well, we give 10,000 a year. Us from the hood are looking like, well, 10,000, where the hell's the $10,000 at, right? <laughs> You've had this now for four years, there's 10, 000, that's 40,000. Have you seen the 10? Have you seen the 10? The last four years, what big festival has come back to Holyoke? Celebrate Holyoke. 100% of the money we found out was going to celebrate Holyoke. We were, as a neighborhood, able to get half of that money, right? And that's how we started the Taste of South Holyoke Festival. So this neighborhood gets a festival. But it's not until we as a community start demanding to see those things that we're able to start changing that narrative. So those are the two pieces of legislation I want to see passed. And again, I think from the state level, I would love to see Aaron push the, the Marijuana Control Commission in the state. Don't give the medicinal companies first dibs because they already bought and paid for those licenses push more equity programs and say, hey, Company Q, if you're going to open now for recreational, it has to be equity lens. What are you investing into this community? And I will give one guy credit. Geraldo Ramos is a local Holyoke guy who's trying to open his own local co-op grow facility. He is struggling to find a building because, again, gentrification is happening. All these factories have jumped their prices all of a sudden because they know the marijuana companies in town. So a factory that was 300000 1.2 million. 2.3 million. This factory down the street they closed, they want $1.8 million for that factory. Why? <laughs> if we were able to do a co-op where we can get 10, 15, 20 members to co collect their money, we might be able to get that building for $500,000 with a loan if it's a co-op. But we're, we're X'd out. So the only companies that can f afford that are these white companies, you know? So those are the context conversations we're having. I'll let Aaron jump in. So, so I, I, I'll, I'll try to be quick. Um, I agree with a lot of what Nelson said. Uh, a couple of things changed from the adult use versus medical. Host agreements are required now. So in the medical, it was not required, and it was great that the city council pushed to get a host agreement. Uh, so that was required, and there's parameters about it. Uh, I was one of the people in the House that voted against the House version of the original medical marijuana rewrite law because it didn't have any equity lens. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and being, I was on the committee and then voted against the, the law that came out of my own committee. So tells you that you know. So that was so. That was and so the Senate basically did some good stuff. We are working with the uh, CCC Cannabis Control Commission, and he's right. I was 100% against letting medical marijuana companies have a, a, an advantage. I was against uh, not allowing uh, more of a preference to local, not just white, black, brown, but having more in-state, local, whether it be Holyoke or people that actually live in Massachusetts have access to these licenses because you also have companies coming from out of state. But there are, but you have beer companies that do the same thing. So I mean, you're going to have a mix of it. But so we have created a couple of ways for local municipalities and local people to get access. One was tiering the license structure so that you're not all going for a hundred thousand square foot license, right? So if Jerry, I'm working with Jerry, he wants to do twenty thousand square feet, he's going to pay a lot less, right, than having to pay for a hundred thousand square. But that, that is going to bring and the and the records. Unless it's trafficking, cannot do not prohibit you from working, and do not necessarily prohibit you from applying. What else there is in the core? What else there? So that medical records will not. Because I agree 100 percent. If I was going to open up a company, I'd want people that work in the industry to work for me. So it should not be a prohibitive factor. And the last thing I'll say, um, what we did with the um, casino companies, and we could talk about casinos all day, but that ship has sailed. Um, <laughs> they came back to us in Springfield. So you're right. They used to say a number of percentage of people they wanted to hire locally. We, the state, thankfully before I was there, in their infinite wisdom, said we're going to put the same restrictions on the 
treasurer of the casino and the gamblers as we're gonna put on the housekeepers and the restaurant workers, mm -hmm. right? So it was like, so the same Corey background standards, which made no sense. So we worked with the casino companies and said, let's carve out all these job descriptions. Mm -hmm. So all, you know, entry level jobs, again, you know, some of them higher skill, lower skill, but let's be real about what's, you know, so people have records getting those first jobs or young people getting those first jobs. I worked with Izzy trying to get people jobs and they get out, it's not easy. So we said, this is, you don't need to have these big ground curry checks on this group, and lots of, so we did that, carved that out. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you're right, work at the, I never heard that you couldn't do rent control as municipality, so this is news to me, right? I mean, there's a million issues I'm dealing with, from transportation to healthcare, so bring it to me. I'm not against what they're talking about, but I would also remind Rebecca when I was on there too, that we found out, um, we tried to have a three-tiered tax system here in Hoyoke, right? Mm -hmm. Rent, uh, homeowners, business, commercial, and or property owners that are renters. So people that own big, big build, all the building owners here, they pay residential tax rate. So whether you own six units or 600 units, you're paying residential, that's their business. Once you start having over 15 units, that's a business. So all these, all these building owners are paying a residential tax rate. So I wanted something in between. Even Joe McGivern was saying that's, you know, they try, again, the state law prohibits it. So it's like, huh. So yeah, so it's a sort of there is sometimes municipalities try to do these things, and then we find out that there's state law that prohibits it. So then we've got to work together to try to create those waivers and those carve outs, or really change the law. I think there's more questions. I'd like to identify myself as Dan Fitzgerald. I'm a lifelong resident of Boyle. I've done project community college for 35 years. I mean, this is the kind of uh, meetings that you know I, I only found out about it by accident, and I'm so grateful that I did. And, you know, to open it up to a bigger audience, it doesn't mean that it, it you know, just that it certainly be held here. I think it's great that I'm very happy to be down here. But from my own limited uh, perspective, I, I've been on the Hoyle Historical Commission, and I'm, I'm no longer renewing my term, but, you know, we, we sought for years to get more Hispanic representation on the Historical Commission. And, uh, told the mayor we'd like that, and it hasn't happened yet. Hopefully it will, uh, because of, there are a lot of demolition delays in this neighborhood and so on. But I'm also on, right now on the Hoyo Bicycle and Pedestrian Committee, and uh, I'm very interested in the PPTA funding because when you talk about things like race and income inequality, mm -hmm. environmental de degradation, our, the PPTA is an answer to many of those problems. And uh, instead, the governor is trying to cut back on the funding of PPTA. And um, there has been some progress in trying to minimize the fear increase. It's already going to happen July 1st. But, you know, as, as a bicyclist, there's no bicycle uh, rack outside here. You know, I, I know all it is is a YouTube. You need to know an upside down view. And, you know, to, to promote these things, it has to be organic. It has to come from the community that bicycling is okay and why not? We have a complete streets program from the state now. And on the Bicycle Pedestrian Committee, we're trying to promote bicycling. And one of the routes is right through Cabot Street here. And uh, we need, in fact, a neighborhood input about that. And because I think, you know, I'd rather see it on Hamilton Street because it's a less busy road. But 
the majority of the people at the committee are going to Cabot Street. But what I'm trying to say is we have to increase the hospitality of people being invited to meetings like this and vice versa. The other groups have to make more effort to, to get a diverse population of attendance and feedback. But I particularly ask all of you, and I'm grateful that I spoke to Representative Vega prior to this meeting, that he has worked to keep the increase in fares of keeping EPA to a lower level. But they are making cutbacks, in proposed cutbacks in schedules and so on. And you know, when you see the handicapped people from on their wheelchairs coming into a PBTA bus, you say, Bravo, we've really come a long way in the past 10 years. And you see the bicycle racks on the bus. That's what you know, empowerment is about. That you know, especially because of the great income inequality, uh, it, you know, under the past 10 years, it's you know, the upper one is a smaller and smaller group of people and not very diverse. And the environmental degradation, you know, the example of the hospitality of seeing a bicycle rack outside of your buildings makes a big difference. Even if people don't use it, it shows that you're aware that bicycling is important as an alternative transportation method. So thank you. Um, I just want to uh, address a few things that were said in there. So one is thank you for coming to this space, anyone who is of color or not. But for far too long in this city, we've had meetings and spaces that always occur from the high school up and our community has never been welcomed. So I think for the first time in history, we as a people are reclaiming and saying we're important. For the first time this last election cycle, we held a mayoral debate where all four candidates came to this building. We were full wall to wall, right? And for far too long, people have always said this narrative and it pisses me off as a man of color. Oh, you need to get more people of color to come out or more people of color. It's not our job to bring more people of color to the space and to this table. And with all due respect, I do challenge this administration on his appointments to boards and commissions. But we replace one good old boy network for a new one. Because a lot of the people of color in this community, shit hasn't changed. From Alex Morris to Elaine Pluta to Saskovich to whoever the hell else was there before, just like for president. So we've never felt welcomed in at the table. And the fact that there was a press release celebrating a 25% diversity rate on boards and commissions, that's still not acceptable in my book. And yes, for these last couple years, I've tried to push people of color but but they don't agree with his philosophy they don't get appointed and that's the problem with our localized government if I challenge you on something or anything or part of this administration I'm blackballed as oh you hate the mayor you're not with him why does it have to be that way why can't I call out the truth of something and still care and we have a great working relationship but I want to see a genuine push we were promised a mobile city hall that was supposed to be open and running by now that was supposed to be down here doing office hours down here but when we go into spaces that are predominantly run by white folks, we don't feel welcomed, right? And so we are building something down here, and that's why I applaud Jack and I applaud Neighbor to Neighbor for even doing this forum here in this space. But these are the first times we're seeing as people of color that we matter, that we have a voice, that we have a space. And I applaud Alex and Aaron for standing up against the PVTA fights. I know people of color in this room who spoke directly to the PVTA chair, including myself, Rebecca, and others, who said, how are you gonna cut our services? And we learned stuff too for the first time that we didn't know, like the Red 24 is an inner city loop bus that's on the small bus, right? It's on the smaller bus. So our folks in our community thought that that was just for hospital staff because it stops at the hospital. It wasn't until we started exploring and saying, yo, there's not even a promotion from it from PVTA. 
And they're absolutely wrong. And listen, PVTA, yes, the state does screw them over with funding. They have the highest ridership out of the MBTA of Boston. They're the highest ridership outside of Boston, and yet they get the least funding. That's a governor issue again. And yet everyone in this Commonwealth continues to applaud Charlie Baker as the most, well, I know, not you. But I'm just saying, overall, <laughs> overall, people are like, oh, Charlie Baker, great guy. No, you're still screwing over the communities of color down here, right? So that's number one. Number two is, for these kinds of, of issues, when it comes to transportation and bike racks, I think, and exactly, I know I've been working with Price, the city is gonna put two or three more bike racks down here. The city is investing in sidewalks down here, but for far too long, the investment in these neighborhoods weren't happening. And for far too long, even in this administration, with all due respect, we were focused on Ray Street and not on Main Street. And for the first time, because of the people, because of Maria, because of Jackie, because of Carmen, Jerry, because of, you know, Jiping down in the flat, whoever, people are saying, hey, what about our street? And why, why aren't we getting the investment? I do applaud Marcos and his team and Sarah now and a lot of them who are saying, hey, what about this? South Holyoke's gonna get the Urban Agenda Grant, thanks to the state funding. We're gonna add over 100 new homeownership properties here, but we're trying to make sure that people from these neighborhoods get first dibs. With bike racks and walking parks and handicap accessible parks, Springdale, CBDG money for these last three rounds have come com specifically to Ward 2, because I've been fighting, and I thank Rebecca and others for having my back. Springdale Park is getting all adult playgrounds, all redone and rehabbed, and we've been working with the new green and the Bike Pedestrian Committee to make Springdale a feature park. But where has the investment gone? Community field. Everyone treats it like that's the, the, the park of gold. We have a great park system down here, and we are trying to be more inclusive, but think about the funding. I looked at a bike rack for Nueva to try to buy a bike rack. I don't got $30,000 in my budget. Like, the companies charge crazy money, and it's not the, the equipment itself, it's the installation. Because it's on a city sidewalk, I cannot just go as Nueva Esperanza and put a bike rack out there. I have to get DPW approval, Mike McManus has to approve it, and that takes forever. So we have tried for years, and like I said, even the building next door, it's, you hear it, it's getting demoed. That was a 25-year fight that Miguel Arce, and I'm sure Maria's mom, and all those folks were saying, hey, city, why didn't you knock down this building? And I'm very grateful in those things. Like I said, I, I do applaud the administration where they do a great job. I do give the mayor credit and this Nueva board. If it wasn't for Maria and the new board that came in and said, why aren't we finally taking down this building? We're gonna build a pocket park in there. And now because it's on our property, we can get a bike rack that's cheaper. And we could also host events there that are, are better for our community. So you're gonna start seeing that. My counter argument and offer to all of those, you know, like statements of like, hey, we need to make this more diverse or we need to create more spaces where other ally folks can come down. We try to build that. We do try to do that. But also as a community that is marginalized and oppressed, we haven't gotten to that level where we're organized and we're moving and we're power building. And that's why I'm happy Neighbor to Neighbor's down here. Or the association. We did a ballot initiative question at Dean and Neighbor to Neighbor was our co-sponsor. That one was packed wall to wall, 300 people. I had, I had Kevin Jordan and Alex Morris battling out over marijuana. That to me was the epic battle of all times. The mayor did a great job defending that. But if it wasn't for this neighborhood and this community, that wouldn't have happened. So those, there, are, there is movement, just to make you aware, and to say we're supporting that. A lot of issues are affecting communities of color, but then when we're in the space, right, they're taking over, right, and not letting us lead. And that's a big issue. You know what I mean? Don't be afraid to say that. I just did. <laughs> but I will. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's on? Okay. Um, 
to touch on transit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like lost my train of thought. Um, to touch on the transit issue, um, that is something that neighbor to neighbor and through like our membership assembly and bringing our members together is something that we want to touch on um, because Governor Baker, like is cutting a lot of funding for transit. Um, and that's gonna impact Springfield and Worcester a lot, including the PVTA. Um, and the PVTA, you know, I, I went to UMass Amherst and I'm gonna say that most of the reasons why, you know, we got bike racks and like the PVTA is because it's five colleges and students use those. But they, I mean, I don't know how the process was behind that, but it's not like, oh dang, like the community also rides bikes, like let's put some bike racks, right? But it's also like, dang, we got so many students, we need bike racks. Um, so there's also that aspect of it, um, having to like bring the community consistently into the tr this transit debate. Um, and lastly with transit, these budget cuts are going to impact the the rates that, that the drivers get, that people who work within, within the transit get. Um, and it's also going to affect us in various ways that aren't fully um, hashed out through the transit department, um, but they might be coming down the, down the road. So that's um, decreasing routes or just canceling them altogether. Um, yeah, a lot of automation. So, you know, like, I mean, I think this is mostly central for the Boston area, but having you like pay for your tickets on your cell phone with a bank account, like what if you don't got a cell phone or a bank account or a smartphone? Like what the, like how are we supposed to ride the bus or the train or whatever it may be? Um, so this is definitely like an issue that I know is gonna impact like anybody who doesn't live in Boston um, or in the Boston area, because it's hard to get there from here. Um, Exactly. And also coupled in with that transit aspect is um, proposals for gas taxes um, and really trying to like there's there's dialogue that transit um, and people who drive is increasing climate change and blah, 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 you know, all that junk. Um, and so there could be a gas tax for people who like drive and consistently pump gas in their car. And then you look at like Springfield and Holyoke that don't have a train that goes to Boston. So like, I mean, we have to hop in a car and drive, but then we also get taxed and we don't have buses to like take us anywhere. Um, so this is definitely like an issue to keep on like folks' mind um, and really to like push the state and this budgeting so that we are not getting lost in this mix of transit. Mm -hmm. But time check purposes, it's 10.18, so we have about another 12 minutes. Um, I also wanted to mention that on a statewide, um, statewide efforts, there is, um, we have contributed to fighting for $15 an hour as well as paid family medical leave. And the school to prison pipeline that was mentioned earlier, in Springfield specifically, the SROs, which are school resource officers, are paid $1.7 million to be in the schools. So you can imagine how, what we can do with that amount of money for our children. Izzy. <laughs> so I might be three topics more or less. It would be criminal record, uh, some somewhat of a gentrification thing, and then the marijuana kind of topic, which intertwined with the criminal record topic, right? And then, right. So the first one in regards to the criminal records is for neighbor to neighbor. Um, it, 
is the fight kind of done towards criminal record reform because of the win that we just got now? Because in another state, in Chicago, I had a policy equity summit, and it sounds like in Seattle they're pushing for ex-felons to become a protected class. So that's a whole other subject, rather, because the, the, the fight that, the win that we just got now is an awesome win, but it still doesn't affect me in any way possible. I'm about to graduate from UMass, and I still won't be able to work in the marijuana industry. I'm, I'm so that, that's where, like, for me, it's kind of like an intertwine of I still get shitted on. I'm going to go enter a master's program and possibly still be shitted on. So the idea is to find a way to have people gain access back into normal seat, whatever that looks like. So that's the part in regards to the criminal records thing. Um, do you want me to answer that? Because I'm like itching to do something. <laughs> um, don't lose train of thought. As an advocate and activist, um, the fight is not over. We're far from done, right? I learned from my past experience, right, that when a law is, when a bill is signed into law, then you have to do implementation. But as an activist and, and advocate, they never give us enough. Right? Like, yeah, we're happy that they did that, but that's just not enough. I'm sorry. I'm a formerly incarcerated person, and if I did not want to be an advocate slash activist, then where would I be able to work, right? And I have no degree. So I would fight tooth and nail for the rest of my life for there to be more given to that population. That's Jafet is nudging me. I'm just getting are, started. Are, are, are on a state level. Mm -hmm. and for me, I'm thinking like on a state level. Is, uh, is their mission still this stuff? You know, mm -hmm. are they still willing to push and not knock on doors and maybe even try to push it further into the protected class? That's awesome. Type of issue. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. technically. I mean, if, if you're working your way back to re-enter into society, they say you pay your debt by doing your time. That's bullshit. You never pay your debt. No, it's no, you're always paying it. never paying it. Mm -hmm. So that's that first part. The other part is um, the marijuana industry thing is, again, I should be graduating from UMass this semester. I technically don't have to work with marijuana directly. I can work somewhere pushing pencils and papers for them. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to still go through that process if I'm just pushing pencils and papers? I can be the mm. community engagement guy. I walk around and say, hey, you build your own community and all that other stuff. They hire all these other people coming from other places. I can do that. that I mean, and I'm, and I'm not just advocating for myself. There are other people that are educated that went to prison and have graduated from colleges and done all these other things that make them seem mainstream or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's giving them the access to get in there and being able to go into the communities and fight for what is mm -hmm. equal for everyone. That's that part. And the other part is the gentrification part. In my urban sociology class, right, even if it, I learned, even if you're selling a building that no one ever lived in for a long time, still consider gentrification because eventually all the other buildings are going to start skyrocketing, uh, the prices will start skyrocketing, right? So on Ray Street, a lot of people say, oh, but nobody even lived there, this is this, 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 nah, whatever, boom. 
true story. The other day, me and a friend of mine were driving through the flats, and there's this one radiator building that has been open for years, but nobody runs it. And we always said, if it goes for sale, we want to buy it to open it into a barbershop. Mm -hmm. It went up for sale. The same day it was gone. Mm -hmm. Same day it was gone. I called the guy and he said, oh, this is gone. This is a hot commodity. The flats properties are crazy right now. This, 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 <laughs> and that. And all of a sudden, a friend of mine tells me he wants to buy this building that supposedly on the book is 40000 They're telling him that he has to pay $1.2 million for that building if he wants the building now. But on the city, on the city website, it's worth $40,000. So if a friend of mine is a local business owner and he's been in Holyoke his whole life, how can we make it so that Holyoke people that are coming up and have lived their whole life trying to make it to that level to buy that business, how can we make it so that we get somebody, like a friend of mine, to be like Gateway City Arts? You know what I mean? Because he doesn't have the half a million dollars or whatever you want to drop on a property like that and then to invest into it. It's like, I don't know, growing within, for me, it's, it, that's part of like, that might be part of the economic development here, mm -hmm. but that's one of the issues for me. Can, can, I, can I add to what he's saying? Because um, I'm about to bust if I don't say something. Okay. I do also have a gentrification conversation. I, I agree we should leverage five colleges, but there's a quote. People who are most affected by a situation have the have the answers. So we need to have a community conversation, not an academic conversation about gentrification. And we have to make sure that our people even understand. I'm happy that we're on here, but this room should be packed. If we were in Chicago and this was happening in the in the in Hyde Park, this place in Humble Park, this place would be packed because we need to educate our people. Like, I'm thinking about the whole bike conversation. Listen, we have been colonized for centuries. Our, our kids don't want to be on bikes because they see that as a time of the past. They see that as a social economic issue. I don't want to be associated with poverty. I want a car. I want to drive a Lexus. But they shouldn't. Right. the backing of the of the Latino community and saying like educate our youngsters, educate us, educate those who want it. Like again, I've never said that I am intelligent in every conversation or anything else. I will express my opinions, but it's like saying when you're saying like there you have to in, in, in 
push people like you know uh, especially a, lot, a Hispanic woman or a Latina woman or anything else it's like saying like yeah I'm up and coming I might not be in the forefront I might not make it but there's so many of us in the back and I think we just need to start pushing ourselves straight forward do you have access to buy a building right now who me you, yeah can you go and buy a building and hold it up right now and make something out of it I wouldn't want to I mean, I mean, you know, like financially, I wouldn't want to because that's not my path, but my path is to empower somebody else. It's my path to educate families um, about their children in, in schools. My path is to saying like, hey, you need to be the advocate, and guess what? I have six others that are right beside me that will be right behind you to push you along the way. You know what I'm saying? Um, sorry, I don't know if you're uh, My name's Ann Harris, and I work for an organization called Stand for Children. Um, um, I have... I think this all conversation all ties into our kids, and I think that's the part of the conversation that I want to bring up. Um, so I am a Latina. I am a public public school graduate. I was valedictorian of Dean Technical High School when it was still Technical High School. So at the end of the day, my passion and my roots come to the fact that Holyoke, not was great, is great, right? It's all about who are the potentials of our families. And um, I was a, a public school special education teacher for eight years. And I, I came into Stanford Children because I wanted to give back to my community. I want to educate my parents. And one of my biggest uh, things is that we're working on is passing the Early Literacy Act that a lot of our members mm. were able to speak to Aaron Vega about. Um, so just filed an amendment um, about for that. So please look that up. I don't want to you know, advertise about that right now. But my point is uh, <laughs> that a lot of the conversation, I know I've heard tidbits and pieces about education, but what are we doing now only to support our, our children who at the end of the day we're in a, in a district that's underperforming. 83% of our children are not reading at grade level by the time they get to third grade. And that ties into all of these issues mm -hmm. of social justice, mm -hmm. of football pipeline. And, and you know, Before you answer that, um, I just want to let you guys know it's 1030. After this question, there's just one more uh, from Alicia. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be really quick, and I like the conversation that just came up. I'm going to recognize um, uh, Dean School again also, who was a part of the um, Skills USA competition, and they got five medals there. There were four civil, silver medalists, and the gold medalist winner was a female in uh, Diesel Tech, which was awesome, yeah. female Latina. So, um, so there's things happening there. Um, I also, and being quick with this, um, there is a equity coalition that is um, that has been formed. Um, we've met uh, four times now this year. We, we meet once a month. Um, so we had a meeting January, had one February, March, uh, and one in April also. Um, everyone here is invited. That's why I'm bringing it up. The next meeting is May 1st. Um, that's going to be at Holyoke Public Library. And we talk about how we can um, 
make schools more equitable so that there's equitable um, opportunity for all students in the schools. Um, the Pathways programs, uh, um, I think, are working. Students who have dropped out are coming back and now being able to get their diplomas. Um, there's all types of things that we can talk about, um, but that equity, I think, is a great um, foundation for exactly what you're talking about. Um, in the last meeting that we had, we stressed the importance of uh, the stakeholders and their contribution in this uh, conversation. And stakeholders is a broad um, name to call people because everyone holds a stake in our students' education. So the more people that we have at these coalition meetings um, and the more ideas we have, um, the more opportunity and support that we can give our students. Also want to see students at those meetings. Also, the first two that we had, we had more students there than we did the second two. So we're talking about how we can involve more students. But um, it's been good so far. If you haven't been to the first four, <clears throat> the way that it's set up, you'll be caught up with a lot of the ideas that were put together um, in those first four meetings and have an opportunity to expand on that as we talk about how we can um, create more equitable opportunities for students uh, in our schools. So that work has been done. If you could come, that would be great. Uh, May 1st at the Holyoke Public Library is that coalition meeting. And then the next one is June 12th. Uh, oh, um, 5 o'clock. Sorry. They're at five to seven. The first, yeah, May 1st and then June 12th. We don't know where that, but the first one is the Holyoke Library. Thank, Thank you. you. My name is Keisha. I'm the organizer with Charlie Justice. I actually have two questions. I have one for um, our uh, school committee members and city councilors, and I have a second for Representative Vega, if that's okay. Um, my first question is, uh, there's a situation going on in Holyoke right now where we're talking about perhaps um, switching the bus services that are used for special education students. And I just wondered um, what your thoughts are on that with regards to the pull between saving money and... Eliminating um, the bus suit? Yes, saving money um, by switching to transportation versus oh. um, good union jobs that they will these be people have had for 20, 30 years and right? safety. Okay. Um, and familiarity that um, so many special in their transportation in order to get a, a quality education when they get to school. Um, so that's my first so um, when this was brought up, we learned about it um, very short notice also. Um, I think it was having a conversation um, and engaging the community. Uh, and I think that's really where we kind of sometimes fail at is saying like hey we have all these things we have all, you know on the on the upper side that have we have these conversations saying hey let's have these conversations these backdoor conversations and I think that's was one of the things that happened within this this system I think what people don't understand is like special needs need consistency uh, special needs need structures and everything else not to say and I'm you know I want to I want to give to to both companies that they're both fall under state regulations and federal regulations the difference is is that you know what's more important is are we saving money or is our children's you know are our children's needs being met in, in with having individuals that know their their needs their their likes their dislikes their behaviors and everything else um, uh, it is still on the conversation. It's still on the topic. We were, they are readdressing it. It was brought back that you know some of the community families did have a conversation, and that's what's the beauty part is that family said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. 
you know, you're doing this, but now I, we need to have a conversation because I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not happy about it. And so the receiver and, you know, the city council and themselves said, okay, well, let's just have that conversation. Nothing has been set in stone right now. Nothing has been signed. And the community, like I said, great advocates among the families that are now having that conversation saying, my children's needs come first and I need to make sure that at the end that I, all the systems are in place for my child to be successful within your own, within the public schools. So it is a conversation that's happening right now. Now, nothing has been set in stone, and we're looking at it in both directions. So yesterday, actually, Tyreen's point that there's going to be a compromise so mm -hmm. that the union jobs can stay, and that they're going to also let Vanpool keep the routes that it currently has. But I do want to applaud UFCW and the union workers for stepping up. Uh, that was the power of organizing. I think, mm -hmm. again, uh, and Jobs with Justice, yeah, the, all of you guys as a coalition really stepped up in a good way. I found out about it for the first time on Facebook by my constituents, 8 o'clock at night. I immediately send the screenshot of the letter from the Jobs for Justice and UFCW to the receiver for a response. Um, but again, I think, and Maria said this before we started say the road with hell was paved with good intentions. So this receiver for all the good that's being done, it's still, it's affecting us, right? And so the school committee and Irene and I were getting into that debate a little bit as well. Like, we do need more people to step up and run. Like, we do need more folks, and I know Jackie, neighbor to neighbor, were talking about this. The fact that we don't have a Ward 2 school committee member, and I love her, that's really fighting or asking these questions is intense for me. And Rosalie and I have sat down, we've talked about it, we're trying to, I'm trying to support her as best I can as a city councilor. But we, as the city council side, don't control the contracts at all the, uh, the school side. Right, but what, is, what happens? The name game, the pointing. Council said save money. We did say save money, but we were specifically talking about a building issue. Most of us found out that Todd McGee and Niles Kershain were on this transportation subcommittee the night it was brought up in council. Mm -hmm. So again, we talk about privilege and access, and you had two white men who are from the same ward, from the same neighborhoods, deciding on transportation that impacts mostly kids of color. Because I know if any of us were on that panel, the first thing we would have said is, where do most of the handicapped bus transportation routes come from, and how many union jobs are there? I know from the monitors to the drivers, they were legit concerned, but there, a lot of them were from our neighborhoods. So they were legit concerned about their jobs, as they should have been. I think it was the power of organizing that stopped the contract, because I now see there's going to be a compromise and they're not going to lose their jobs. Um, but we have to be weary, because yes, we as a council, do we do have a very tight budget, right? And unless we're going to start addressing, and like I said, and this is all due respect, I love Council McGivern, I love all, and I can get in trouble because I don't give a shit anymore, to be honest. We're always being fearful about saying, oh, well, if you're going to cut police or fire, well, guess what? We have too many firemen and policemen for this big ass, com this little community, so why don't we save some of those jobs there? But it's all union. It's all politics. Who's going to vote for the mayor next time, right? But then we're, we're, we do have to cut because by law, we have to balance the budget. But on the school department side, we have no control, no light item control, no nothing. We continue as a body to support the school, and that's what I'm saying, even when they say, well, we don't fully support, that's not true. We gave them, when they came in for their request at that moment, what they needed. They did tell us they were going to come back for more, but Rebecca and I remember were fighting when the council was trying to cut 300000 from what they requested. We stood up and said, hell no, give them fully what they need, and even now, they're going to come back again and ask for another $700,000. we are going to give it to them, but they were cost of saving. They're saying that they were going to save 700000 So then why are you going to ask us for another 700000 It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. What my continued concern continues to be with the school department, and we've said this, how much are these chiefs getting from out of town? Where do those out-of-town chiefs live? And increasing the resident requirements for teachers is huge for me. And so like, I think that those things will all help us um, and not hurt us necessarily, but I'll let Rebecca chime in. 
So I know that we're running out of time here. I just want to say, um, so the the compromise that the mayor is um, working to signing off on is really a, 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 a win for the unions because at the end of the day, the unions leverage the public forum that the city council had. We don't have the ability as a city council to even vote on this contract, influence this contract. But what they did by submitting that letter was leverage a public forum to get the issue heard. And then we could start investigating, well, what are, the, what are the working parts? What are the features? And really what I think is being signed off on in this compromise is I, I think that Durham resubmitted a, a, a proposal with better numbers. And that was the union putting pressure on the employer to not just, you know, submit the status quo and, you know, n not think about it, but how, you know, how are you going to stay competitive? <clears throat> how are you, excuse me. Yeah. It, it didn't it didn't it didn't have to. But then I think that nobody nobody came forward with a proposal either. Um, and then once once Durham won the big bus contract, the district turned around and said, Can you please do something with the small buses if you want to retain that contract, can you do something better with, with the numbers? Because they were just anticipating that the numbers that Durham was submitting for the small buses the small bus routes was going to be the same as past years. And Durham was able to, you know, move some numbers around. And so instead of $3 million in savings going to Vanpool, I think there's only about a million dollars in savings um, retaining the small buses um, with, the, with the union contracts um, over the next three years. So, I mean, th that's a union victory um, because they're putting, they're putting pressure at the correct points. You know, they're, you're, they're utilizing the public forum that, and access to the public that the city council has, but then also applying pressure to their employer to step it up in terms of the bid and the numbers that they're putting out there. Alicia, what was the second question that you had? So much to say about the education stuff, uh, the union stuff. It's also good to remember that the bus contract is separate of any state funding, so it's on the city. That's another issue. So, so and, and I'm just saying, what was unfortunate about this argument, one part that didn't come up, is that even those savings, the quote-unquote savings, wasn't guaranteed to go back to the schools. So we're talking about these other savings and other areas, like you know, diverting money from SROs or this or that. In this case, 
it, the city council could say, sure, put it all back, but it was a very interesting, a lot, I think we all learned a lot about bus funding. To your question, um, I've been very clear from the get-go, I think. Um, I'm against the teen carve-out, always have been. I am supportive of what I would call a seasonal wage, uh, 80 days or less of employment for, uh, for a summer job or for around the holidays. Um, documented uh, 70 days less, you could, we, could, we could work on the number. Um, it comes from the small mom and shop, mom and shops, it comes from the boys and girls clubs that hire summer jobs that they were hiring 15 and 18 kids before, then I hiring 11 kids, and if it goes to 15, they're gonna hire seven kids, right? So I'm totally against the teen wage because they, if you're 15 years old, you get, you get a job because you're supporting your family or your teen parent or whatever the case is, you're locked into that rate for four years, five years, absolutely against it. Um, I'm against a, a training wage, quote unquote, because a big company could keep somebody in training for a long period of time. I've been adamant from the very beginning, uh, even when we did the $11 minimum wage, which is the highest in the area, in, the, in you know, New England at least, and most of the highest in the nation, um, I was much more in favor of creating the carve, I guess you cover carve in, if you will, to say that big box stores, any company that employs more than 120 employees in the state or has more than three locations should be paying 15 an hour. So again, you're talking about the difference of someone who has a job at Walmart or Target or a fast food restaurant who's trying to support their family, is on mass health, has a childcare voucher, and the minute they get more than more money, we gotta watch out that they don't lose that stuff, right? Because I've been a big proponent of what, what is transitional assistance, it's not transitional. There's the cliff effect where we, we don't know all about this stuff, right? So the slippery slope of the minimum wage. But again, coming back to those teen jobs, which I'm also a huge proponent of, summer teen jobs and summer youth employment, all this stuff we're trying to do about youth employment, creating the, it's gonna, the, the, the workforce is already so competitive that if some part-time job is looking at someone who's 26, 27 years old or home for the holidays from college or some 15-year-old getting their first job, the 15-year-olds, even not. Our teen unemployment rate in Massachusetts is over 23%. Even though unemployment's 4.7%, disabilities and teens. Disabilities in 18, I think 18, 19%, teens are 23-something. So I support the minimum wage uh, increase. I do think there's issues to talk about, though, about how it may affect someone's benefits, how it may affect small businesses. I think there's all, all concerns that we should talk about as proponents of 15 but I am in favor of what I think is a, is a compromise and would not affect teens in a negative way, a seasonal, hard, fast, on a date of number of days. And the minute a company went over those days, they'd have to reimburse fully for the past. You know, so if we say, hey, we're gonna hire you for 80 days and then it's 85 days, well, you gotta cough up the four bucks an hour for the other 80 days, you know? So that, to me, it works. So, hope that's clear. My issue with the whole $15 an hour is that it would not be 15 till 2022. It's 2018. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I think by 2022, we'll be fighting exactly. for Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing is, 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 as the economy is business, then they're going to, you know, so right now, if you're paying, I don't know what a cup of coffee is from Dunkin' Donuts, right? A buck fifty. Three dollars. It's already three dollars. <laughs> I don't drink coffee. Um, and I don't support Dunkin' Donuts, but that's the whole other. Um, um, so three bucks. So the minute Dunkin' Donuts has to pay their employees 15 bucks an hour, that coffee's going to cost six bucks. So where, I, where are we? You know, it's one of the one of the concerns. And right, the research shows that we don't lose jobs. Yeah, I mean, there's this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so and I think the ballot, it's going to pass. I don't think that we're going to do something legislatively that's going to be a compromise. So I think that it's going to go the ballot, as far as I can see. We're probably working on a compromise on paid leave, uh, but I think that the uh, ballot question goes forward.
Well, I want to thank everyone for coming. I also want to give a special thank you to Joelle, Jocelyn, uh, for taking photos. Um, our young people, right? My daughter, Alexander, her boyfriend, Justin, for setting up breakfast. Thank you, guys. Um, I want to give uh, thanks to Scott from Holyoke Media and Johan, um, as well as the school committee. Thank you. Thanks, Kaylani. Go, Mom! She's, she helped us set up the